Fight Song is produced with commercial consideration from Cubic Corporation. The U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun, is known worldwide as a center of training excellence in air combat. From the time of its founding in 1969, the school has exemplified its motto, You Fight Like You Train. Since 1972, an integral component of Top Gun's ability to train world-class aviators has been Cubic's Air Combat Maneuvering Instrumentation System, ACMI, providing high-fidelity time-space position information to teach air crews the critical lessons needed to win in air combat. Tomorrow's fight will be even more complex, requiring even greater fidelity and capability in training to achieve victory across all warfighting spectrums. Cubic's next-generation blended live virtual constructive or LVC training system prepares warfighters for the high-end all-domain fight, integrating unprecedented realism, superior readiness, and unmatched total cost of ownership, achieving maximum mission readiness and enabling success on night one and beyond. Truth in Training, Cubic LVC. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Welcome to Fights On, an eight-part podcast series sponsored by Cubic Corporation. Fights On is a journey through military aviation training, from initial flight school selection through postgraduate courses like Top Gun, culminating in a discussion of the challenges of training to future threats and technology, including fifth-gen platforms and the need to be even more connected in multi-domain air-to-air and air-to-ground operations. My name is Scott Chafian, and I'll be your host for Fights On. I'm a retired naval officer who spent my career first in surface warfare, focusing on the Aegis combat system, before becoming an expeditionary anti-terrorism officer specializing in foreign training. During that time, I worked with joint and coalition allies in air defense and strike warfare, trained partner nation forces in countries from South America to Iraq, and along the way picked up a degree in military history. I hope to bring all those skills to bear in guiding us through the fascinating story of military aviation training, the skills, the technology, and the people, as told in their own voices. So strap in, because the fight's on. Hey, welcome to flight school. Start drinking from the fire hose. You're solo. So the Navy has decided they need to mitigate the risk. And if you crash, they don't want the instructor going down too. I'm set to get my wings. I am now set to be a Naval aviator. Something that I had been looking for since probably I was nine. The aggressors are entering the airspace at this time. First section of the combat spread real tight. Roger, Tario, I've got one man, he's in a left hand turn. That's you're about to get guns. Ox one on the F5, nose down. Turn in, fights on. Well, hello and welcome to episode one of Fights On. I'm your host, Scott, and joining us today is retired Navy pilot Brian Sunshine Sinclair. Brian, or Sunshine as we'll call him, is a retired Navy S3 and F-18 pilot, as well as being a test pilot. Welcome, Sunshine. Hey, Scott. Thank you very much. Just happy to be here. (laughs) Okay. Happy to have you here. Before we jump into the meat of today's episode, which is all about Navy flight school and how the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard, I should add, teach uh, young college graduates to be pilots, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your military career? Yeah, I started out in the S-3B Viking which went through an evolution of missions, but when I joined the S3s, it was predominantly 
uh, carrier-based tanker. So very important, but not sexy or glamorous role, but we were airborne tanking for the fighters coming back onto the carrier. And then from there, I moved over to the F-18C, which is the single seat legacy model of the Hornet. And then from there, I went to the F-18E, which is the single seat Super Hornet. And then also uh, after flying the F-18E, I was afforded the opportunity to test pilot school. So I went with the Air Force actually to the test pilot school there and had a chance to fly a lot of different aircraft. So over the 21 years total as a commissioned officer, I got to be either a student, a teacher, or a pilot. So when it comes to the pilot part of it, yeah, that test pilot experience afforded me uh, a little over 30 different types of aircraft. And because it was with the Air Force, it, they focused obviously on the, the Air Force inventory. So I got to fly cargo planes like the C-17, fighters like the F-15, the F-16, even a a 1950-era Soviet fighter, the MiG-15, which was pretty cool, and we can talk about that later. Uh, tankers flew the KC-135, flew a, a smattering, we'll say, of helicopters, both uh, Navy and Air Force, so predominantly the 60 series, so the HH-60 or the SH-60 for the Navy folk, and a few civilian aerobatic trainers, kind of like the Extra 300. So those, all those uh, aircraft wrapped up together turned out to be about 2,700 hours. Okay, that, that's a pretty impressive resume, and I think we've got the right person to intro into <laughs> our series here. Uh, that covers just about all the bases on aviation. Uh, you said 2,700 hours, and I want to just stop for a moment and translate that into something for the non-aviation listeners out there, because 2,700 hours, depending on how you look at it, can sound like an awful lot, or it can sound like not a whole lot. So I'm going to try and use a sports analogy here to illustrate what those hours really mean. Let's say you play high school sports, football, lacrosse, whatever. And let's say you're practicing about four hours a day all week. That's 20 hours. You've got the game time in there as well. Let's just round it to 20 hours a week. And you're doing that for, let's say, about 16 weeks. And that could vary, but you get the idea that 20 hours a week for 16 weeks is 320 hours. And after that, you're not a rookie anymore. And we're talking about many times that number, four, five, six, seven times that number in terms of flight hours for guys at the end of their aviation career. So that's a lot of hours. That's a lot of experience. And in addition to the on-field time, just like in sports, there is off-field time or not in the air time where you're studying the plays, you're watching the game tapes, you're doing everything that goes into making that on-field time the most. And it's just like that in the aviation as well, right? Absolutely. And for us, the uh, one thing to keep in mind also, a great analogy with high school sports is that each of my flights in the fighters and in the trainers too were predominantly an hour and about 15 minutes. So if that helps, it gives you an idea of where you're looking at, you know, maybe 2,400 flights or something like that. So, mm -hmm. and in the, the Navy, we traditionally, we love our patches, right? Whether it be a squadron patch or our, our call sign patch. And we give out patches if you get a thousand hours in type, mm -hmm. in a specific type of area. It's kind of a, a high water mark or an achievement. So you're right, 2,700 hours shows that, I guess, A, I'm old, <laughs> and B, that I, but I have some experience. Right. So there are old pilots and bold pilots. And I think I'm one of the old pilots. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about what you did in the Navy, but 
of course, you, you did a lot of hard work in the Navy. You did a lot of hard work in flight school, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But you didn't just get there. There was a lot of hard work to even get there. So can you tell us about what led you to fly? What, what was the dream, and how did you achieve it? Absolutely. So if we could rewind back to when I was nine. So I had a, my aunt and uncle gave me a book called Visions of the Universe, and it had some very amazing paintings of other planets in our solar system. And it also had some written words there, some copy, if you will, from Isaac Asimov and Carl Sagan. Anyway, I absolutely love that book. And oh, by the way, if there are any Star Wars fans out there, those movies were just kind of in the movie theaters when I was growing up. So a blend of this book and those movies, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so while I never got to wear the, the NASA blue flight suit, if you will, I did sure enjoy the journey. So as most of us can attest, life's not really a destination. It's more of a journey. And Absolutely. while I never got to be an astronaut, I sure enjoyed the journey to try to get there. So in high school, I got to go to these air shows. I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So we had Harrisburg nearby. So I go to Harrisburg air shows. And I was always just kind of a math science kid. So it was just more, more numbers than, than writing, if you will. So it's kind of my tendency. And I ended up applying to the three academies. I got into the Naval Academy, which turns out had the at the time, had the, the most amount of graduate astronauts, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. or graduates yeah. who were astronauts, excuse me. So I went down to the Naval Academy there. And keep in mind, that's not the only way to get a commission in the Navy. There's also Navy ROTC, that Reserve Officer Training Corps, which is basically the Navy can provide a scholarship, either full or partial, to a civilian university. And then, so they, they pay for your your academics, and then on the, when you graduate, you get a commission and you pay them back in, in years of service. There's also Officer Candidate School. It's a 13-week program where you basically get college on your own, pay for it on your own, and then you join Officer Candidate School, and 13 weeks later, you become an ensign or commissioned officer. And the final way is the enlisted commissioning program. So you can go ahead and enlist in the Navy, and then if you rise to the top there in performance, then they can pick you up for different programs. Like there's something called Seaman to Admiral 21 or Stay 21, and they'll uh, afford you a college degree as well as a commission. So anyway, of those different options, I chose the Naval Academy. And the thing that really afforded me the Naval Academy, that is over the, those other options I mentioned, was probably, uh, let's just say the Academy wasn't a great place to be, but it was a great place to be from. <laughs> and so what I mean by that is, when I went to flight school, I had a bunch of instant friends, guys that I knew from the academy were now in flight school with me. And as we'll talk about later in flight school, it's going to be cooperate to graduate. And I don't mean cheating, obviously, but I mean, it's a group effort to get through because there is a lot of material. And those friendships continue to, you know, kind of grow, if you will. And I still have them today. I've got a reunion actually coming up. My 25th year reunion is coming up here this fall. And then also the, what the Naval Academy afforded me was networking once I got out of the Navy. So looking for jobs and all that stuff and in the San Diego area. So it's, it's worked out quite well. And it did actually afford me a NASA internship when I was at the Academy. I got to crawl around the space shuttle Endeavor. Oh, wow. And do an intercom okay. check. Yeah. So it's kind of fun. Very nice. So there are a lot of things that you had to do to get to flight school. It's excellence that starts well before even the Academy or ROTC. I think it's some important to point out that not all pilots, NFOs, WIZOs are math and science guys. You were, but you don't need an engineering degree to get to flight school. 
Absolutely, and you bring up a great point. So I was aerospace engineering at the academy and I thought that was the way to go, the only way to go. Boy, was I wrong. So uh, through flight school and in the fleet, I met guys that were English majors and history majors and they were much better pilots than I was. So it's definitely not based on your academic discipline, we'll say. And of course, all these different commissioning routes, be they the academy, ROTC, AOCS, Human to Admiral, uh, some may differ in this opinion, but they all commission a qualified officer and everyone's on a level playing field as far as that goes when they get to flight school, right? Absolutely, 100%. You guys all start out as ensigns mm -hmm. with uh, almost a clean slate, we'll say, as you step into flight school. Okay. So, and let's, let's take a moment here because depending on what your background is, you may or may not be familiar with Navy ranks. And just to go up that, as we said, you start as an ensign, which in the Army or Marine Corps or Air Force would be a second lieutenant. And you're going to, at least when I was in, you're going to hover there for about two years before you make Lieutenant JG. I think that's about the same for your career time, right? Correct. And then at two years after that, you'll make in the Navy lieutenant, which is equivalent to an Army Marine Corps or Air Force captain, which can make for some very interesting phone conversations. <laughs> you move up from there, but I think for terms of today's conversation, uh, you're pretty much getting out of flight school as an ensign or a JG, right? Correct. Okay, so uh, for the listeners out there, that's like a second lieutenant or first lieutenant, and we're going to talk in a, a later episode about Air Force flight school, so that'll be a touchstone for where those relative seniorities come in. But you're coming to the end of your time at the academy. And of course, there's a lot of different options you have for what to do as you're coming out of the academy. And you had your sights on aviation, but we all know the service are always what's more important. So tell me about how you end up being selected for aviation in that case. Sure thing. So you're right, although Scott, good point on needs of the Navy, right? So what happens is though, at the uh, prior to the end of the year, so come the fall or the winter time frame, excuse me, they're gonna the Naval Academy will rack and stack with Big Navy and realize how many available pilot slots, WIZO weapon system officers or NFOs, Naval Flight Officers, the backseaters, how many slots they have for those, for ships, for submarines, for SEALs, as in special warfare, Marines, so on and so forth. And then they honestly allow the students to apply. So you're gonna apply, I, I put in my top three choices, and then from there they get kind of racked and stacked, or I was racked and stacked based on my grades, both academically as well as militarily, as well as physically, against the other would-be candidates, and they conducted a series of interviews, and those interviews were hosted by naval pilots, or naval air crew, I should say, that were actually stationed at the academy, and from there, it's just like a job interview, right? They have questions they ask. They, they have a grade sheet. They fill it out based on your answers. And then from there, we found out service assignment was sometime probably in the spring. And that's when I got the good news that, hey, you got Navy pilot. Right. So kind of doing backflips, if you will. Right. So there you are. And, and I think as we will come back to multiple times through this episode and through the series, uh, there's a series of goals, and every time you achieve one, it's quite an achievement. But as most things in life, that achievement really just creates the starting point for the next phase of what you're doing. And so you're doing those backflips, well-deserved for getting the pilot <laughs> selection. 
and then it's off to flight school. And I, I think depending on how old you are, you, you have a different vision of what that means from, uh, you know, all the way back to the World War II era movies and going off to flight <laughs> yes. school to an officer yeah. and a gentleman. If you're a little bit older, uh, you and I probably remember that one <laughs> moving forward. But what is flight school? What really is flight school for the Navy? Yeah, so I'll tell you what. I went in, I thought eyes wide open being an aero major from the academy, blah, blah, blah. Nope, that, that all really mattered very little. So it was a completely new creature when I got down there to flight school. And a lot of folks you may hear, they say, hey, welcome to flight school, start drinking from the fire hose. And so what I mean by that is they are gonna inundate you with information. They are gonna expect you to be moldable, so or trainable, we'll say, to work within the standardized procedures that they have, specifically checklists, if you will, and you have to be aeronautically adaptable. So you can't get too sick in the plane, have to be able to go through the basics of aviate, navigate, and communicate. So in flight school, it's more than just the stick and rudder skills, right? Or the monkey skills, we'll call it. Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of fundamental knowledge that's required. So, and the knowledge, we can kind of group into two categories. There's administrative stuff and there's academics. So with the administrative stuff, first and foremost, you got to remember, you raised your right hand and you, you're commissioned in the Navy or the Marine Corps in this case. And so you have to be a commissioned Naval or Marine Corps officer. So you have to understand how to stand watch. And while they're kind of classing you up, sometimes there'll be a little bit of a backlog in the beginning. So you come down to Pensacola, they're not quite ready for you. So they're going to give you a temporary job or what we call a stash job. Mm -hmm. So they're going to put you somewhere, probably within aviation, and just your job is just to learn how to be a good ensign in the Navy. So you kind of nail down the, the admin of standing watch and understanding big Navy. And then when it's time to finally start class, you have a bunch of medical screening, as you can imagine. There's a physical fitness test and you have water survival. So those are all kind of the, uh, the administrative parts of it, of that mm -hmm. knowledge. Now when it comes to academics though, uh, that's gonna be classroom environment, and some of the topics will be aerodynamics, so thinking super and subsonic flows, right? Uh, Bernoulli, dynamic, static pressures, that kind of thing. And then you'll get into engines. And honestly, you can think of suck, squeeze, bang, blow, right? If you guys mm -hmm. ever did your shop class, yeah. So, but instead of internal combustion, now you're looking at more turboprop, turbojet, and turbofan engines. And then you're going to move on to, hey, how do you conduct yourself in the air? So we call them flight rules and regulations, or FRR. And that's going to be, hey, how do you take off? How do you talk on the radio? How do you conduct yourself in a safe, professional, and predictable manner, airborne, just to be more of an asset than a liability while airborne. And then you'll get into navigation of, hey, how do we get from point A to point B? And we'll also talk about weather and whether you remember what a towering cumulonimbus cloud is or a stratus cloud, you know, just know. And hopefully what I, what I learned is I have a healthy appreciation and maybe a tad bit of fear of weather. So weather is gonna be one of the pilot's biggest risks, I would say, and that's hopefully what you'll learn in this course, and then you'll be reinforced as you actually do the flying. Because Scott, there's one time I was actually, so I was in the fleet, and my aircraft was struck by lightning. Okay. Yeah, so we can um, talk about it now, or we can save it for another episode, whatever you like. Well, let's, let's uh, well, let me take a step back and just say, you know, wow, look at everything you've already just discussed. <laughs> and like, what sort of time frame? are we talking about that you will have not mastered or, or gotten expertise, but you're dipping your toe into the waters of all those topics you just talked about in what sort of time frame? Yeah. So that first, we'll call it elementary 
phase of flight school, which is the academics and the admin part, is going to be about six weeks. Okay, six, six weeks. Okay, so in fact, just sitting talking with you, uh, you know, it's a bit challenging to even go through the list of what you just described to me and for <laughs> me to go back and recall all that. And so even though, you know, you're coming out of your college career and sort of at the peak of that ability to, to learn, you've been doing it for four years, that's a lot for a relatively young person to take in, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot, and it's a lot of varied subjects. It is, and also, as you step into your specific platforms, the training aircraft, you're going to have to learn verbatim things that trigger the different warning lights in the jet, we'll call them, uh, just a generic term, warning lights there, as well as the engine limits and any kind of limits, so lights, limits, and emergency procedures, and you have to know them verbatim, as well as you have to be able to talk around the systems so all that together, you're right. It's going to require a, a, it's a massive amount of information to which you are ultimately responsible. Sometimes it has to be verbatim. So you are very much responsible for digesting and sometimes practically applying that information. Okay. And is, is that what is called NATOPS? Is that the, the NATOPS system, if you will? Yeah. So NATOPS for the, uh, the newer listeners there is uh, Naval Aviation Training and Operating Procedure Standardization, N-A-T-O-P-S. It's going to be the user manual, right? So it's going to talk about the systems. It's going to have your lights and limits. Hey, you can only go so fast. You can only pull so many Gs. Here's how you perform a landing. And then it'll also give emergency procedures. So, hey, if your engine flames out or if your canopy comes unbuttoned, or if a wing falls off, not really. But anyway, it'll go through all those kind of procedures like that. Okay, and you're getting that from day one, almost. I mean, this is ingrained into every naval aviator out there, right? It is. So it's gonna. It start. You start out in the Cessna. So they don't really have a NATOPS, but uh, eventually get into primary, mm -hmm. and that's where you're gonna have your introduction to the the T6B Texan II, and that'll have a NATOPS. You're absolutely correct. Okay, so that the Cessna you were talking about. Let's go back and sort of look at the individual phases. We've talked about that, that six-week lead-up, and is that a, a specific school? It is. So uh, big picture-wise, so we'll kind of work big to small if you don't mind. So big sure. picture, we have four phases of flight school. There's elementary, as I call it, primary, intermediate, and advanced. So within elementary, when I, and once again, you know, I'm the old pilot, so we used to call it Aviator Pre-Flight Indoctrination, or API. It's now called NIFE, N-I-F-E, for Naval introductory flight evaluation, KNIFE. And that's the six-week course where we step through the admin we talked about earlier, as well as the academics of which we spoke earlier. And then they get you ready to fly a Cessna 172. And when I say get you ready, that's where they're going to... Naval aviation is very steeped in diligent procedural compliance. So what I mean by that is follow the procedures, fly the procedures, know the procedures. So... They're going to get you ready for that kind of procedural mindset in the Cessna 172. And we're doing that just like you, you're you going to teach your new teenager how to drive. You're not going to throw them the keys to the Hellcat. You're going to maybe find something with a little less horsepower, a little less heft, and they can make mistakes in that and recover from mistakes in that a little more easily. Is that correct? That is absolutely, yeah. No, see, awesome, awesome analogy. So let's let's think of it this way. How about... So you teach your teenager to drive around the neighborhood, so they have a 30-mile-an-hour brain, right? So mm -hmm. we started yeah. out crawling, walking, and we're going to run. So what I mean by that is 30 miles an hour, now you bring them out to the highway, now they go, depending on where you live, let's say 70 miles an hour. 
Now, when you get to this knife program, N-I-F-E, right? Mm -hmm. The Cessna can max out at about 165 miles an hour. So now you're thinking going from 70 miles an hour to 165 miles an hour. And then eventually we'll talk about the other planes, but you're going to see the relative size will increase as well as the relative speeds will increase because that's going to affect your decision making. As sure. you can imagine, you got to stay above, in front of the plane or as we say, you need to anticipate the aircraft. Right. Oh, absolutely. So you went through API. Okay. And so when you completed API, then you went to primary and where was that? And let's talk about where you started and where primary takes you. Absolutely. So after API in Pensacola, I traveled to Corpus Christi, Texas, and that's where I started my primary portion of flight training that lasts about 26 weeks. And it consists of, and I flew the T-34C Turbo Mentor, but now it's been replaced, and, and rightfully so, it's been replaced by the T-6B Texan II. And that that 26-week syllabus consists of familiarization flights, or contact flights as they called, and get, kind of getting back to that fundamental knowledge. You have to have systems knowledge of how the hydraulic system works. If it exists uh, on some planes, it doesn't. <laughs> An electrical system, uh, the power and you know, propulsion system and all that. And you have to understand how to operate safely in that area. So for Corpus Christi, there's certain rules when you go flying of, you know, uh, kind of rules of the road. Mm -hmm. So we had to learn all that. And so my brain went from the 70 mile an hour kind of mentality, uh, you know, driving a car on the road, obviously, to now it was stretching my limits. And I had to be able to anticipate flying at 250 knots. We're gonna, I'm going to switch over to knots here, if you don't mind. Yeah, fair so nautical enough. speed. Yeah. So anyway, so now I'm, I'm trying to basically foster or grow my 250-knot brain, and I'll do that during those 26 weeks in Corpus Christi. And some of the stuff we go through is a fam, there's somebody in the back. Traditionally, you'll be assigned an instructor they call an on-wing, and they're looking for consistency here. So you're going to have this on-wing who's going to be your somewhat dedicated instructor pilot in the back, if you will, and he's going to take you up through your first solo. And then once you're fully qualified to solo, then you're going to work on how to better use and understand the instruments in your jet. So during the fam phase, you only fly during very clear weather, minimal clouds. So we call it VMC for visual meteorological conditions. So basically, okay. you know, bright sunny day, we'll call it now. But obviously, that's not always the case. And so kind of going back to that earlier comment that weather can be one of the greatest hazards. Mm -hmm that they got to learn how to accommodate the weather. So fly in clouds and you need to use your instruments to do that. So they're going to teach you how to do that with the um, instrument scan, if you will. Then once they, uh, once you kind of figure out how to fly in the clouds, they're going to take away the light and that'll be in the form of night flights. So you get to do some night flights just to, you know, and, and some of those are solo. So it's a very big confidence builder. And then finally, the most fun I had in primary was actually formation flying. So you go up there with a buddy, Initially, you'll have somebody in your backseat and an, uh, an instructor pilot, and then you'll have a buddy in another plane, and you go out and you practice different kind of rendezvous, whether it be in a turn or a straight ahead, and how to cross under, and how to basically maneuver near and around another aircraft safely and expeditiously. And I'll tell you what, that was awesome. I mean, if I, if I had GoPros back then, I would have videotaped the whole thing, you know. It was just something <laughs> yeah. so new. It was, it was great. Yeah, it, I could just hear in your voice the, the joy of it because it's that's sort of the pure aspect of flying, right? Just manipulating yeah. your aircraft. And let's let's talk about a couple things here in primary. 
and one is is the concept and i want to just keep reinforcing the concept for the listener which is everything is building blocks so you you know you came out of that api and you had some knowledge and now you're in that i think you said 250 knot platform and it's because these things need to be second nature right it's it's just like driving you can't think about what to do in a panic stop or what to do in a skid that has to be ingrained so that you can use that knowledge and address the specifics of your situation. Is that an accurate way to look at it? That is absolutely correct. So two things, you have to lean on your procedures because the procedures were crafted, written, whatever you want to call it, traditionally by someone making a mistake. So, or things not to do, if you will, as well as procedures on how to do it well. So you're going to lean on those procedures. You're going to execute those procedures flawlessly or hopefully very close to flawlessly. And then you also have to be able to anticipate what's going to happen next. That makes sense. So stay ahead of the plane, we call it. No, it it absolutely does. Yeah, it's just like driving, as we said, in the city as opposed to on the freeway. Your scan distance changes. You need to be alert to things further ahead. So talk to me. We've talked about the sort of the science of it and the, the art of it, if you will. Let's talk a little bit about the emotion, right? So you've wanted this for a number of years. You've you've got the flight suit on, which, you know, that's cool. That's just a cool thing. And you're walking out there and you've got your helmet under your arm and you're looking at, at the first Navy plane you're going to fly. You know, tell me what's going through Sunshines. And before you were Sunshine, I bet you didn't even have the call sign yet. But what was going <laughs> through, you know, Brian Sinclair's mind? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, like Sunshine came later. But uh, in the beginning, it was just, uh, <laughs> it was overwhelming, but in a good way. So my whole impetus for the Academy was to eventually fly and then, you know, eventually move on to NASA. But, but the flying part, I thought, wow, here I am walking to a plane and in some cases solo, I was going to take off solo. So I'm just enjoying, honestly, the smell of the JP-5 mm-hmm. and the noise of the other engines on the flight line. And just knowing that I, you know, this is naval aviation. I mean, I'm, I'm just starting and I absolutely love it, but I, there's a healthy respect for it. Because as we'll talk about later, I lost some friends during training, but it is just, I don't know how else to say it, but I was giddy like a schoolgirl. So <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And so let's, let's uh, take this moment to say uh, giddy uh, like a schoolgirl is non-pejorative <laughs> because uh, even though you and I both tend to, to use, you know, he, when we're discussing all these roles are now open to women as well, which I will say when I first joined the Navy, that was not the case. That was just transitioning to be the case. And so we want to make sure that we throw that out there. Uh, this is open to anybody. And if you have this dream, you can go out there and get this feeling, this just incredible feeling. I can, I've been around naval aviation. Uh, you know, I know the sights and smells and sounds you're talking about. And then I know the ones that are particular to, to my background and they just sort of get inside you and you, they become a part of you. And it's just, I can tell listening to you what a special feeling it was. All right. So let's talk about the transition from primary to intermediate. Where are you going? What platforms are you using? Talk to me about what that's like. Absolutely. So once you're finished with primary, whether it be in Pensacola or whether it be down in Corpus Christi, then there are five options. And those five options are going to be driven somewhat on student preference, but more importantly on needs of the Navy. And then also there's something called the NSS or Navy Standard Score, and we'll talk about that shortly. But with those five branches, if you will, the first one's gonna be jets. 
So if you go Jets, you can go to either Meridian or Kingsville, and that would be both for intermediate and advanced. You'd be flying the T-45, and up in Meridian, they call it Trey Wing 1, Training Wing 1, and it's the VTs 7 and 9, the training squadrons. And then in Kingsville, they call it Trey Wing 2, and it contains training squadrons VT-21 and 22. You can also go the, the E-2 route, and the E-2 route would be uh, propellers that are carrier-based, obviously. So you're going to start out your intermediate training with a T-44 in Corpus Christi, Texas. That would be under the auspices of Trey Wing 4 and VT-31. And that would be for intermediate. And then for advanced, because you have to get some boat experience, you're going to transition over to the T-45. And that would be either in Meridian, or Mississippi, or Kingsville, Texas, as we mentioned earlier. The third option would be Maritime or TACAMO, which is a TACAMO is an acronym for Take Charge and Move Out. Think of your E6s, the, um, the Navy version of the E6, or Maritime Patrol and Reconnaissance, the Maritime stuff. So that would be the, used to be the P3, right now it's the P8. So if you're on that training track, then you're going to have both intermediate and advanced will be in Corpus Christi. Once again, you'll be at Trey Wing 4. And you'll be in either one. Of, you'll be in one of two squadrons, either VT31 or VT35. And once again, they'll be training in the T44 for that. Now, if you choose helicopters, if you're already in Pensacola, then you're going to stay there, and you're just going to transition to Whiting, which is over in Milton, Florida, and you'll be under the training Air Wing Five. And they have three HT squadrons there, which would be HT8, HT18, and HT28. And that's where you'll be in the TH-57 Bell Ranger for both intermediate and advanced. And then finally, Scott, this is a budding community, so it's very immature, the training track. But that would be the V or the CV-22, which is the Osprey, right? The tilt rotor. With the tilt rotor, you're going to start off with intermediate in Milton, Florida. So once again, you'll be Trey Wing 5 there at Whiting Field under HT either 8, 18, or 28. And then you need some multi-engine time, so you'll transition to advanced training in Corpus Christi where you'll be under Trey Wing 4 in VT 31 or 35 and you'll be training on the T44. So those are the five different pipelines that branch out from primary into intermediate and advanced. Okay, and a couple things there. The multiple squadrons in different areas, that's just to give capacity, right? There's no differentiation in mission or training. They're all training exactly the same syllabus or syllabi. It's just additional throughput, correct? Absolutely, yeah. They have a very rigorous training and standardization procedures for all to make sure that the squadrons are training in the same manner. Okay, and then you mentioned the E6, and I think I'll just mention uh, for the listener, a lot of people are familiar with the EA6, uh, and particularly the EA6B Prowler, which is no longer in service, I believe, not even a reserve airframe. The E-6 is different though. That that Takamo aircraft is a very different aircraft. Do you want to talk about that a little bit briefly just to describe what it is for the listener? Absolutely. Talking about Takamo, so that's the E-6A as we call it, the uh, Takamo, once again T-A-C-A-M-O. So it's an acronym standing for Take Charge and Move Out. And it's a derivative of the original Boeing 707 airframe. So it's a very large airframe. It's got four engines hanging off the wings, as you can imagine. And the E6 is called the Mercury. So when the Navy adopted this, this derivative or model of the 707, they called it the Mercury. And its primary mission is going to be for strategic communications. So it can actually drop a very long antenna out the back of it 
And then with that very long antenna, you can propagate or you can send out very low frequency waves, which travel quite far because they can bounce off the atmosphere. And that's one way we can actually talk to our subs on a strategic, in a, in a strategic manner. Okay, thanks, Sunshine. I just wanted to hit that for the listener. I think the E6 is a airframe that is not that well known and maybe a little unappreciated, even among Navy aviation aficionados. But I want to come back to a term you used a little bit before, which was NSS. What is that and how does it affect a student pilot's future? So the Navy Standard Score, or NSS, it's not really a, a true measure of their performance. They have a different, the Navy that is, has a different way to grade performance. But it's more a ranking of the student once completed within a specific population. And that specific population is actually the last 60 primary graduates or the last six months worth of primary graduates, or I should say completers, whichever is biggest. So what happens is, Scott, it's actually a moving sliding scale because the reference population changes. It only looks back as far as 60 people or the last six months. And then what it does is it's gonna take your performance grades and it's gonna compare them against the other or the last, excuse me, 60 or six months worth, and it's gonna give you a ranking. And that ranking is artificially forced to the middle. So if you think of a bell curve or a Gaussian distribution, right, just kind of your normal curve, the middle point, the highest peak of the bell curve is gonna be an NSS of 50. And then what'll happen is they have these things called standard deviations. So basically to grab about almost 90% of the completers under the bell curve, the grade, the NSS, excuse me, number is gonna go from about 35 to 65, where 50's in the middle. And what'll happen is then based on your performance and the performance of that population, the student once graduated will get a number somewhere in there and it's traditionally between 35 and 65 where you need greater than 50 to be considered for JETS. But so that's kind of the math behind it. If you were someone were to Google NSS, they could see the actual formula with the different uh, components and all that. But I can't stress enough that while you're going through primary, don't sweat the NSS. It's, it's a moving target and it's not terribly relevant until you actually graduate because you're being compared once again to the last 60 people or last six months of completers. So don't spin your wheels on that. There's many other things that I would rather flight school students spend their, spend their time on and definitely NSS is not one of them. And oh, by the way, as a flight school student, if you walk into student control or StuCon and you ask about your NSS, you're gonna be marked. And it's more of a scarlet letter than a gold star, if that makes sense. So just just stay away from the concept till you're toward the end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that last bit of advice goes for a lot of things, not all things, but a lot of things in the Navy, which is focus on your performance, not how people are thinking about you. Absolutely. And your performance will speak for itself. And sometimes if you show too much interest in how you're doing, then that, like you said, is a mark that says you're focused on the wrong things. Totally agree. Totally agree. So the intermediate phase is going to be, for me, it was down in Kingsville. There are two venues, Kingsville, Texas and Meridian, Mississippi. The syllabus for intermediate is roughly 27 weeks. And it's uh, the training aid, we'll call it, the platform is gonna be the T-45C. Now I flew its predecessor, the T-45A. But if you can think, uh, earlier we talked about the, the 250 knot brain. And so now the Navy's gonna coax out of people the 500 knot brain. So you gotta go 
twice as, you're going to go twice as quickly, so you have to think twice as quickly, or twice as fast, we'll say. And so the T45C, it tops out, its end speed is about 540 knots, so, you know, almost 550, it's a, it's, it's a healthy scooter, we'll say that, and it's, <laughs> it's max G available, is a little over 7 Gs, right, 7.33. Okay. It's a non-afterburning turbofan. So we've removed the propeller that we had on the earlier, the, the Texan 2, right? Mm -hmm. And we got a jet. And this thing has got a pointy nose. And so it, it actually, it was at this point that I thought, wow, I'm going to be a, a Navy jet pilot, if that makes sense. And that's just this whole nother, you know, goosebump kind of uh, feeling of arrival, if you will. So this is starting to look like a real jet. Uh, no propeller, got... The jet engine, just one, uh, which I think comes into play here in a little bit, right? <laughs> Let's, let me take a quick step back to something you said in primary, and that's about the move from the T-34C that you flew to the current T-6. And you know, obviously the Navy chooses to upgrade. Could you just talk a little bit about what those upgrades mean in end user terms? Because really this whole series is about how we move training forward and how we use tools better and use better tools. Absolutely. So, well, if you don't mind, so when we talk about training aircraft, let's think about some of the metrics, some of the things that are common amongst whether it be a propeller trainer or a jet trainer. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first and foremost, it has to be the airframe itself has to be easy to fly because you got a bunch of beginning students, right? So it probably has to be forgiving. And when I say forgiving, I'm saying it doesn't, easily stall, it doesn't easily get into a steady state spin, all these kind of characteristics. So you want it to be quite stable. But besides being stable, it does have to be some somewhat maneuverable. And those two terms are complementary. You can be very stable like an airliner or you can be very maneuverable like a fighter. So you gotta find a kind of a compromise between the two because in these primary training and in intermediate advanced, you have a lot of aerobatic training. So we call it unusual attitudes. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a chance you could be flying around, uh, I don't know, for whatever reason in the clouds and all of a sudden you realize you're upside down. So how do you safely maneuver out of that? So you need this maneuverability aspect to your, to your plane also. So it's got to be easy to fly, as we mentioned earlier, has to be uh, aerobatic. It has to be rugged. So during these students, as they're learning to land, you're probably going to smack the thing down on the ground a lot, right. right? Some hard landing. So you have to worry about that. You have to worry about overstressing the jet in maneuvers too i.e. pulling more than the allotted G limit. So things to worry about there. And then you also want to think about for the bean counters in the Navy, you got to think about how cheap it is to buy mm -hmm. the training aircraft as well as to maintain it and operate it. So if you take that, those confluence of metrics, we'll say, or you bring all those metrics together and then you have to define though, what, what exactly do you want to do with the trainer? Do you want to train the 250 knot brain? Do you want to train the 500 knot brain? And so that's going to play into the strengths and weaknesses of each of the different airframes. Mm -hmm. So the T-34 became very expensive to maintain and operate, right? It's kind of like, let's say you bought this 1970 Corvette and it was awesome for about 20 years and now it's leaking oil and the seals are failing and it starts to get very expensive to maintain. Well, something similar was happening for the T-34. And they also wanted to improve and they wanted to make the T-34 displays, so, or I should say the primary trainer displays, more like what the jets have. And that would be a glass cockpit, we call it. So less analog gauges or steam gauges, as we call it, with needles and tick marks and all that. 
and we want to go more with screens, as in computer screens, because that's what we traditionally use in the fleet these days for F-18s and growlers mm -hmm. and whatnot. So anyway, so they wanted to upgrade the cockpit. They also wanted to decrease the cost, not necessarily the unit cost of the jet for purchase or the plane for purchase, but more the maintenance and the operating costs. So they came up with the Texan II. So it was, it was a very logical transition for the Navy, both fiscally or financially, as well as training value added, if that makes sense. No, it does. And, and I think that's a reality that, you know, be it a military member or just a taxpayer, we need to be cognizant of is that we need to get the most value for our dollar. And it's not just the flying hours. It's not just the cost of the aircraft. It's the cost of the maintenance. It's the cost of the people doing the maintenance. And the more efficient we can be in our training and training systems that provide that, the more we get for our tax dollar and the more ready our men and women are when they go in harm's way. Absolutely. It's going to be a bang for the buck, right? So let's bring that back to intermediate. We're back at the 500 knot platform and you're going to start putting all these things into practice. So, so tell me about the kind of hops you would take, the kinds of training, what were you doing in, in the intermediate phase? Absolutely. So intermediate is going to be your introduction to, in my case, the T-45A, but to a current student would be the T-45C. And the biggest difference there is going to be having a glass cockpit and a velocity vector. So anyway, just the uh, avionics, if you will. So with that introduction, obviously you have to learn how to fly the plane. So the familiarization phase will come first or the contact stage, we call it. And then from there, you'll learn some unusual attitudes and the recovery. So let's say once again, you're flying the clouds, you lose track of something, all of a sudden you realize you're upside down or in a descending turn. You have to know how to recover successfully from that. So they'll go through unusual attitude recovery. Oh, by the way, this plane, as we talked about earlier, will stall. And it's, it's very resistant to spin, but it could get into this, these weird oscillations. So you're going to go up and do a flight called out of control flight or OCF and you'll learn how to recover from a condition where the air crew is currently not in control, hence the, the name, out of control. Right. Then you'll do some night flights, and you'll also learn the how to fly in the clouds. So you're looking at basic instruments, as well as radio instruments and airway navigation. And then there's a, there's a, a short period where you're going to get a taste of what it's going to be like going to the carrier to land, and they call it FCLPs, or Field Carrier Landing Practice. And they, quite honestly, they just paint a box the size of the landing area on the carrier. They paint it on the runway itself at one end. And you'll have the optical landing system, the meatball, if you will, set up there. And an LSO, a landing signals officer. And they're going to simulate the carrier environment as best they can while still on a runway. And then you're going to have this LSO grade you as you come in to apply your perfect pass, if you will. So it gives you good handling characteristics. So you really get comfortable in the jet in the landing pattern during FCLPs. Right. And so I think, you know, a couple things there are the comfort in the landing pattern, right? And, uh, you know, I know for ships, there's traffic separation schemes and we're used to rules of the road. When we're driving, it's a little different at sea and it's, it's a lot different in the air because now with the air, you're adding a third dimension. And these are all things you just have to know because... You can't, I will, I will actually steal a line from uh, another aviator that I just heard discuss. You know, you don't go to serve in a landing squadron. You go to serve in a fighter squadron. 
So <laughs> landing needs to be something you just do. Operating around the field or around the boat needs to be something you just do, right? And this this is the whole point of these reps. These are batting practice, right? That's absolutely correct. And and uh, I'm not sure it was the the pilot you referenced was he an Air Force guy or a Navy guy? He was a Navy guy. Okay, cool. Yeah. So. And I don't mean to be arrogant by any means, but naval aviation in general is going to be set apart from the other services by the fact that we land on carriers <laughs> in all sorts of weather, day and night. So yes, absolutely. So a staple of naval aviation is being able to land on the boat. So to the comment earlier, yes, it's 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 just something that's got to be done. It's assumed that you're going to do it well, which means professionally, safely, and predictably. Okay. And then you can focus on the air-to-air missions. Let's let's go back and I just want to hit a couple of terms you used for the for some of the novice listeners. You talked about angle of attack, stall, and spin. So can you just give a, a layman's view of what those are? Because I think as we talk through the series and we get into the more complex maneuvering, uh, those you know for the listener, this is your primary phase. This is where you need to understand these things so that when the talk turns to BFM and such, you you know what's going on instinctually. Absolutely. So we'll start off with angle of attack. So angle of attack is quite literally an angle, and it's going to be measured between the relative wind. So as the plane is flying through the air, the relative wind is coming the opposite direction, right? So we'll call it the wind. It's going to be the angle between the wind and the center line. We call it a cord, but basically the center line, that would be the point from the leading edge of the wing to the trailing edge of the wing. Those two points draw a line. We'll call that the cord, just to keep it very simple. And it's the angle between the cord and the relative wind. So it's how much the wing is cocked up into the uh, slipstream or into the relative wind. And what will happen is, as you can imagine, as you cock the wing up, it's going to create more and more lift, which is great when you're slowing down right to land. But then what will happen is you can hit a kind of a critical angle of attack. And without getting into boundary layers and all that stuff, it causes a stall. So you lose a very significant portion of the lift on the wing and the wing stalls out. And if it's no longer producing lift, then the aircraft starts to allow gravity to take over or traditionally fall. Right. And that's that's a bad thing for an aviator, right? Uh, traditionally, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it depends on the tactic. But yeah, I'd say, sure. I'd say eight times out of 10, yeah, stalling is not a good thing. Right. So angle of attack, if you get too high angle of attack, you lead to a stall. And then you had also mentioned spin. So spin is going to be a combination of stalling an aircraft as well as introducing yaw. So for the, the listeners, I, am, I beg you to, to look at roll, pitch, and yaw. Pitch mm -hmm. is going to be the nose moving up and down. And usually that can contribute to a high angle of attack, mm -hmm. which can lead to a stall. But then when you kick the rudder, which is going to basically the, the lateral motion of the plane of the nose specifically, if you, if you stall the aircraft and then you add some yaw to it, that can uh, set the, send the aircraft into a spin, mm -hmm. which is going to be an out-of-control phase of flight. Right. And I know, I know it's frowned upon in uh, fighter pilot circles, but we'll go back to that movie uh, from the 1980s. <laughs> I'm sure it's obscure and everyone is going to have to look up, but uh, Maverick is in a flat spin and heading out to sea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we won't touch on the inaccuracies of some of the oh, details, no, but, but a it's... spin is a spin. And, and so this is a bad thing. So you need to know in the plane you're flying, how far you can push these limits. How far can you bring the angle of attack? Because, of course, the angle of attack isn't just 
up and down, right? I, I think everyone who's flown on an airliner thinks, well, we're running down the runway and I feel the pilot pitch the nose up. And if you think about that angle of attack and getting a more a little bit more lift and you take off, that's that's something everyone's familiar with. But angle of attack comes into turns and banks, which means dogfighting, right? Absolutely. You could, instead of having wings level, as we'll call it, which would be your commercial airliner example for takeoff and landing, I could be... I could have my I could be up on a wingtip we call it or knife edge. So basically I could be with my wings are now vertical, purely vertical, and I'm in a turn. And I'm gonna pull the nose and that's gonna tighten my turn, which effectively increases the angle of attack, or as you and I'm gonna throw another one at you, sorry. As yeah, you as sorry. you talk about basic fighter maneuvers later, uh, angle of attack term AOA is has been traditionally replaced by just alpha. Okay. So as in the Greek letter alpha. Mm -hmm. So angle of attack or alpha will be synonymous. And so as I'm now back into my example where I'm up uh, on a on a wingtip or my wings are vertical as I'm turning sharply, when I pull back on the stick, that's going to increase my turn rate and it's going to increase the alpha. You're absolutely right. And you could stall and they call that an accelerated stall, but you can stall in that condition where the wings are vertical instead of horizontal. Okay, thank you for those definitions. We'll be coming back to them throughout the series, so they're important to understand. And just as a personal note for the listeners to really give a feel for this, back as a midshipman, they send you off to Cortramid, uh, might be called Protramid now, and you get to do all the different things you might do in the Navy. And uh, long story, not that short really, but uh, was in a prowler and ended up doing the carrier break over uh, the field for the simulated carrier landing. Didn't realize it was coming, whole nother story, and pulled about four or five Gs without being ready for them. And that was a significant physiological event. I now know what tunnel vision and gray out in the air are like. Uh, so let's talk about the physiology in the environment, which we haven't done yet and talk about how that affects pilots, air crews, whizzos in air combat and BFM. Tell us about what those effects are and the training you get and what you guys do to mitigate those. Great question. So also if, uh, just because of the, the time here, what's current, I guess, is the, the new Top Gun film, right? Not the uh, flat spin out to sea with Goose. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, and what was novel about their cinematography is they actually filmed the actors in the back seat of a plane really doing those maneuvers. So what you saw when you see their faces kind of melting, that is them under G. And so that, that G, what happens is it's going to affect, as you could imagine, your blood. It's going to decrease the blood pressure in your brain, which uh, I'd say 11 times out of 10 is not a good thing, right? So we, <laughs> right. We, yeah, so we kind of rely on our brains a lot. So what will happen is we have to learn ways as air crew to reinforce the pressure in our brain or fight against the gravity pulling down blood out of our brain. So we have a couple options available to us. The first one that we always wear, so it's mandatory, are called um, a G-suit. And that's a series of inflatable bladders, uh, very rugged inflatable bladders that are around the legs and the abdomen. And they're controlled by a computer. And as we pull more Gs, it's going to inflate those bladders, kind of balloons, if you will, very close to our abdomen and legs. And it's effectively going to squeeze the blood back up, back into our brains and back into our heart so it can go to our brain. So, okay. so we, have the, we have the equipment to compensate for those maneuvers, as well as we have another 
physiological training we go through, and that's going to be, we call it the hook maneuver, where it's a tensing up a lot of your major muscle groups in your body in addition to the G-suit, and that's going to help to reinforce, we'll say, the blood pressure uh, up in the brain. Okay, so in addition to your mind taking in all this knowledge, you're training your mind and body to fight in an extreme environment. 100%. Yeah, I, I think when we look at, at the military, we, we definitely think about uh, infantry and special forces and the extreme environments in which they fight. And, uh, you know, I've touched those areas of the world, not that I what didn't do either of them, but I've touched those that I don't mean any uh, denigration. What they do, what they do is very, very difficult, uh, incredibly hard environments to fight in. But I think it's important to point out that, you know, there's some chronic injuries to fighter pilots, particularly with the neck, right? Like this is not a an endeavor that comes without a cost. Totally agree. So uh, I am old and broken. Fair <laughs> <laughs> sure enough. When it comes to my lower back and my yeah. neck, and just you know, flight and then these these high maneuvering, highly maneuverable, let's say jets, are not natural. All right, I just mm -hmm. I don't feel that we were honestly built to really pilot these things. So it takes a lot of practice and mm -hmm. a lot of conditioning to do so. And unfortunately, some of the, the negative effects will be guys will see issues with their necks and their lower backs. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the other thing you mentioned was the out-of-control flight. And this is something that as a non-aviator has always been strange to me because I can conceive of it, but you hear about departing controlled flight or out-of-control flight. Can you talk to, like, talk me through your experience with doing that? Because for a non-aviator, departing controlled flight sounds a lot like I'm crashing. And if you don't recover, that is what you do. But sort of talk us through this. Like, give us maybe a sea story about what that's like in the cockpit to, to deal with that. Of course. So quite literally, by definition, out-of-control flight means that if I push the stick in a certain direction and the plane doesn't react appropriately, i.e. if I push the stick forward and the nose doesn't go down, then I am not in controlled flight, therefore I am in out of controlled flight. So these can happen in spins or an aggressive stall where the wings are no longer creating lift, so you just start falling. And literally gravity takes over. At that point, there's not enough air over the control surfaces on either the rudder and or the ailerons, the, the control surfaces on the wings. And you can move the stick, you can honestly stir it like you're stirring soup in a pot and the, the aircraft does not respond to it because there's not enough air flowing over those surfaces. And so that is by definition out of control flight. So uh, the OCF out of control flight in the training command wasn't terribly scary, but when I went to Air Force test pilot school and I learned to fly the F-16, that was impressive. I'll say <laughs> the out of control flight we did there. Okay. So if I can, um, it's a maneuver where we did this over Edwards Air Force Base. We started up in the, the low 30,000 feet regime, so we have plenty of airspace or plenty of options underneath us. And we basically pointed the nose up very high and installed out the aircraft. And when the aerodynamic forces kind of subside, so the wings aren't really working, the control surfaces aren't working, then pretty much gravity and inertia take over. So whichever way the plane was flying, it's going to translate, it's going to move that way because of the inertia of the whole flipping aircraft, right? Mm -hmm. But gravity is going to take over. It's going to start to fall. So what happens is I actually got into this inverted kind of a spin. 
and then the nose was swinging back and forth. So it wasn't always a flat spin, if you will, <laughs> going back to Top Gun. Yeah. So all this more, if you could picture a pendulum on a clock, the nose was swinging like a pendulum as the entire aircraft is rotating. And, oh, by the way, we're predominantly upside down and we're falling very quickly. So what happens is my altimeter, and keep in mind there's a heads-up display, which is going to project the flight information on a piece of glass in front of me. That heads-up display, or HUD, has airspeed, altitude, heading. Well, the most important aspect when I'm upside down falling is going to be my altimeter, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So the altimeter basically becomes a timer. And I have procedures that I studied and memorized ahead of time. And I know that I have to eject out of the aircraft at a certain altitude because the engineers have decided that it's going to be almost unrecoverable below a certain altitude if I maintain that kind of spinning pendulum motion. So we, uh, we, we enter into this, into the spin kind of this, uh, violent maneuver and I'm going through the practiced rehearsed, we'll say recovery motions with the controls and it's not working so that now I have a guy in the back seat, mind you, the instructor pilot, and we pass a certain altitude and it's by procedure. I'm supposed to hand over the controls to him and then he tries to affect the uh, recovery and he also couldn't get it to recover. So now we're getting closer and closer to the minimum altitude where we have to eject. And, and keep in mind, I'm going through test pilot school after flying in Iraq and Afghanistan and getting shot at and landing on the boat at night and having all these other things go wrong. And I thought, I can't believe it. The first time I'm going to eject, it's going to be during an academic <laughs> flight in a training syllabus. You know, like, son of a, <laughs> it's just not my day. <laughs> so fortunately, about 2,000 feet prior to when we're supposed to eject, the instructor yelled at, hey, I'm starting to get it, and he did recover it, and it worked out. We did not have to eject, but that OCF flight in the F-16, I will never forget, because when I'm in the front seat and the instructor's in the back, the only thing I can do besides look outside and see sky, ground, sky, ground, <laughs> as we do our pendulum swing, is the altimeter, and I see that clock ticking down, and all I can do is think, wow, I'm actually gonna eject. Wow, I'm actually gonna eject. And unfortunately, we didn't. So. That is an incredible story. <laughs> and something that struck me as you were telling it, you have gone through flight school, including doing CQs. You've worked behind the boat on deployment and bad weather at night. You've been to Iraq. You've been to Afghanistan. You've been to test pilot school. You've been a test pilot. And you're just recounting this like, eh, you know, went out, drove down to the store, got a gallon of milk, came home. And that, I think that's part of being not just a pilot, though it is clearly, but really any service member. And that's the ability to objectively and calmly deal with the situation, recount it later, and be accurate. And that's another one of the things we're teaching these young kids is how to be in a moment like that and carry on with that utter professionalism. Absolutely. And what will happen is the training it's an evolution and kind of a continuum. So please don't ever think that training stops when flight school is over. Right. I learned something about the plane, something new every day until I retired. So that training just compounds. And eventually there's going to be this anxiety that gets, it doesn't, it never left me. I was always, I had a very healthy appreciation and a little bit of a fear of the plane and the weather and the gas and all that, you know, mm -hmm. all the, the normal hazards. But it becomes a very small aspect of your mindset. 
and then you, it, it can actually empower you of like, oh, I gotta, I gotta make sure I pay attention to detail in this phase and this phase definitely. And it was just amazing how there's this this migration of being nervous about a plane until getting some confidence, but still being a little leery so that you make sure that you don't get complacent. And there's a very big difference between confidence in operating a machine and being complacent when operating a machine. Absolutely. No, it completely does. Uh, and you can see the progression that the Navy has uh, put into place here to get you. We've talked about the 250 knot, the 500 knot. And then as we've built all these skills, next comes the advanced phase. So let's talk about that. Uh, are the speeds increasing? Is the plane different? And what skills are you learning there? So absolutely. In the advanced phase, you're going to be flying the T-45 again. I flew the A. You guys will fly the C. And now they're, they're going to treat you more like an adult. So there's going to be a lot more solo flight. So intermediate phase was about 27 or so weeks. And then advanced is almost the same. It's about 25 or so weeks. And you're going to go through some really cool stuff, things that you have never done before. It's the things that video games were made of. Okay, <laughs> so the, the first phase we're going to call strike, and that's going to be you're going to learn to how to drop a bomb <laughs> and hit a target. And we use these little 25-pound Mark 76s, they're called, and we, we nicknamed them Blue Death. So you're going to do some practice bombs, and it's going to be amazing to watch that and go out in formations and drop bombs together, and quite amazing. And then you're going to do something called OpNav, and road recce where you're flying low levels and you'll be flying low levels with a wingman and we're talking 200 foot you know above ground level if you will at 450 or so knots 360 depending on the timing and you can actually combine that with something that you learned earlier tack form or tactical formation on how to make a turn so if you have two planes that are a mile apart or a mile of beam as we call and they want to make a, a 90 degree turn to the left how do you safely and effectively get both jets to maneuver without even talking on the radio. So you go through some training on that with the, uh, the OPNAV or ONAV and the road recce and TAC form. And then honestly, this is besides going to the boat, which is fantastic, the BFM stage. So BFM is basic fighter maneuvers, mm -hmm. right? And this is gonna be dog fighting. So this is where you'll have one or two hops where there's a guy in your, in your back seat kind of talking through some things. And then after that, you're go, gonna go up against either an instructor and you'll be solo or you'll go up with another student, both solo, and you'll go against the third person, which will be the instructor, and that's called section engage maneuvering. So two versus one, or two v one. Mm -hmm. Two v one, sure. Exactly. So BFM. So this is now. Keep in mind the T forty five. You know, I've now, I don't know, goodness, I have probably, let's say, sixty hours or so in it. So I'm I'm feeling kind of comfortable, but it's still, you know, there's still a lot of learning to be done, and now it's in a very dynamic environment. So with BFM. There's a learning curve, surprise, and, and the instructor who you're fighting against usually is much more well-trained than you, at least than I was. And I ended up defensive a lot. So meaning he's behind me, he's shooting at me, uh, simulated obviously shooting, and I'm just trying to maneuver to not, so he can't get a gun solution on me. So there's something called the guns weave. So picture this, we're in this fight, we, uh, we're maneuvering around, dogfighting, and slowly we progress down to the, the hard deck, which is gonna be about 10,000 feet. And he's saddled in behind me, about to take a shot. And so I'm trying to do this guns wave where I'm kicking a rudder, trying to get some yaw in there, trying to just move my jet in a weird fashion so he can't get a gun solution. And that's when the compressor stall happens. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. compressor stall being, uh, we talked about, 
we talked about aerodynamic stall on a wing. Mm -hmm. Well, there are these little blades in the engine itself that kind of act as wings. And if they stall out, then you start to interrupt the airflow through the engine and you get it to kind of cough on itself. Well, these coughs are very loud and it sounds like someone took a sledgehammer and is quite literally banging on the outside of my cockpit. So I hear this bang, bang, bang. I look down at my engine temperature and it's above the normal spec, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I, I will never forget this emergency procedure as long as I live, because it was my first, uh, we call it high pucker factor, but basically really scary moment. And that the, uh, the exhaust gas temperature or EGT, if it stays greater than 450, 450 degrees Celsius for more than six seconds, I have to shut off the only engine in the jet. So, so sure <laughs> your enough. Your primary and only engine, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and trust me, this was the longest six seconds of my life. <laughs> And so I counted to probably eight or 10 and the, the temperature still stayed high, which means the compressor stall is persistent. And the only way to clear it at this point is to remove the fuel. So I have to go throttle off. So I roll wings level from whatever crazy maneuver I was trying to do, wings level, and I shut the engine off. Now, when you shut the engine off, the, the lights on the outside, we have these little twirly red kind of flashing lights, mm -hmm. the anti-smash lights. Well, they shut off too. So picture my instructor, and he's just about to shoot me. So he's you know behind me, looking through his HUD at me. And all of a sudden, I just go wings level, and he could see that my lights turn off, which means my engine's off or I had an electrical failure. And I just start coasting down. So now, picture me on the inside. I've got to get a certain airspeed, and then I've got a, we've got a little mini gas turbine starter, a GTS, that we have to fire up to, to get the engine to start back up again. So here I am watching the altitude and I started about 10,000 feet and I had to push the nose over to maintain speed. So now I'm down about 8,000 feet and I'm starting to think, okay, so I might have to eject if I can't get this engine started. So I start the little mini engine, the GTS, that gas turbine starter, and I get that thing going and now it's about 7,000 feet. And then I bring the throttle, we call it around the horn. So I basically go into the on position for the, the engine and I, this is where it gets a little blurry, but I think about 5,000 feet or so, I was able to get the engine going and to recover. But there were, and it, what, folks, uh, if you've ever been in an accident or anything where there's, uh, there's trauma, there's this time dilation, right? Where your brain just accelerates, just starts speeding up and consequently time slows down. So the first six seconds that I counted, you know, to see if the engine was gonna fix itself or not, that was long, but then what was even longer, Scott, was when I flew the T-45 as a glider. Okay. <laughs> no engine. I, I bet, yeah. So I think we'll forgive you that you don't know exactly, <laughs> you know, what your altitude was there. So you recover from this, and then I assume you, you knock off the, the evolution, and you, you head home, or is the compressor stall something that's, hey, okay, that just happened, let's get back into the training program? No, absolutely not. You're right. We knock it off, so I call knock it off, knock it off on the radio, and then we climb up. And then uh, I join up on the instructor and we he start heading back home. And then that's over on the radio when I explained what happened. And now granted my time in the T-34 and then during the intermediates with the T-45, it's honestly been very benign. It's a very difficult syllabus, but nothing that kind of uh, made me nip at the idea of mortality, if that makes sense. <laughs> right. But this yeah. one, this one, this one really got my attention. I'll say that. So, yeah. um, so I quite literally, and this is probably overly dramatic and, and, and so be it. But actually, when I landed the jet and then shut down the engine and crawled out, I honestly kissed the ground. Like, this is, <laughs> this is awesome. I made it. You know, it was, 
was, I'm back. Uh, I'm alive. Yeah, I'm back. I'm alive. It was a very, it's very much a rite of passage for me. Right. So you mentioned that being your first feeling of you know that grip of mortality in aviation, and that's a very real thing uh, at all phases. And unfortunately, this is not a a zero risk uh, profession, right? And I think we have to touch on the fact when we talk about training systems and be it in flight school or learning to fight fighters out in the fleet, that there's some risk here. And I'd like to talk about that if you don't mind, if that's not too personal, to put a little bit of a human face on this and understand what the stakes are and why this is so important. I don't mind at all. Absolutely. So I have always thought of it as naval aviation is not an inherently dangerous job, but it is very unforgiving. So you have to know those lights and limits. You have to abide by the capabilities of your aircraft. And sometimes if you step over them just a little bit, those capabilities, it leads to catastrophic results. And by no means does that mean it's the pilot's fault all the time. It's not always air crew or pilot error. Yeah. There can be engines that fail at critical speeds, or maybe a bolt comes loose at a critical speed, the wing flies off, and there is no way to recover. We've, we've definitely read stories about that. But for me, the mortality piece was a constant reminder. And what I mean by that is my, so my 21 years, I spent about 15 years flying, and honestly, I lost about a friend a year. So very difficult. A lot of closed caskets, sometimes they don't recover the body, lost at sea and all that. So it's very, very dramatic. And my first introduction to that was honestly in flight school. And I had just shown up in an intermediate. So I just showed up to Kingsville and I was at our local watering hole, kind of the, the, um, the pilot bar, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. So I'm down at the O Club, right? The pilot bar. And I meet someone who's just about to go CQ. So he's just about to finish the program via carrier qualifications or CQ He's a guy, it turns out he's from Pennsylvania also. His name was Brian Shelby, call sign Shaky. And he is this Marine Corps captain, so an 03, that just, I am idolizing him. So think of me as the freshman in high school, and he's the senior varsity quarterback for the team. You know what I'm saying? So he is just, he, he's, he's what I want to be. So he takes me under his wing, and we're just chatting at the bar and introducing ourselves. And I just remember, wow, this, this guy, he's got it all figured out. It's just going so well for him. He's got to do CQ, and then he's going to go off to the fleet and do good things for the Marine Corps. I'm very excited. Well, that was on a Friday. Now, Sunday, he flew out to the boat, and I believe it was a Monday he died. And what had happened is the T-45, we talked about compressor stalls earlier. It also had some very known issues, one of which was on a catapult. So when they're launching off the carrier, there's been a tendency for a tire to blow, one of the main tires, so the two back tires. Mm-hmm. And so there was a debate as to if these ti- if one of the tires blows, do you bring them back to land on the carrier where you have four wires available and an, a landing signal officer to supervise or coach his landing? Or do you send him to the, the airfield or the beach where there's a long runway and there's only one wire and there's not always an LSO out there? So that was the debate, what to do with Brian, send him to the, bring him back to the boat or send him to the beach. Well, they decided to bring him back to the boat. And unfortunately he missed all four wires, which is very easy to do. And then when he landed with one tire available and one without, without a tire, if that makes sense, it starts this yawing. So basically a rotating of the aircraft 
and the aircraft rotated and skidded off the landing area. And when he ejected, he ejected into the side of the aircraft carrier. Mm. So he was literally just demolished. Yeah. Uh, so there was, you know, and so I ended up attending the funeral for Brian, this guy, this kind of Superman who I just met on a Friday. And let's say it was on a Thursday, the following Thursday. I remember attending the funeral and seeing the missing man fly over. And what, what will never leave me, Scott, is the haunting wailing of his mother at the funeral. So just a really, it was a really uh, severe gut check very early in the program for me. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a human cost you guys do and you know that is haunting um you know don't want to go down a, a different path there but but you know have been there um at that ceremony as well and it's something that never leaves you and i think that this is really the importance of these training systems that we're talking about and this isn't the importance of putting every possible benefit and advantage in front of people because there are enough things like this that are out of the pilot's control like you said they, you can't control that tire blowing right and so we need to put as many things under our control as we can and you know i appreciate you sharing that because i know time heals wounds but it it doesn't heal scars all the time correct but um yeah i think let's let's move from that not too quickly let's give it its its due respect and i want to i want to go back to the compressor stall that you were talking about sure um just to mention something that we've said earlier in the episode and i think it was put into practice in in your compressor stall is until you got restarted at altitude good to go your wingman or your instructor didn't know what was going on. And that goes back to a phrase you used earlier, which is aviate, navigate, communicate, right? Yes. And can you explain why those are in that order? Absolutely. And they are prioritized, just as you mentioned. So aviate, you got to keep the, keep the shiny side up, right? You want to yep. keep the plane intact. You don't want to fly into the ground or others around you. So that's going to be the highest priority is just handling the aircraft and maintaining that. I'm going to call it a dragon for lack of a better term. Yep. The F-18 to me was I was I was strapping on, I was strapped to a dragon, if you will, and <laughs> running around the sky. So, so you need to aviate first and foremost. And then from there, once you're sure you're not going to run into anything, then you can figure out how to get to point B, assuming you started at point A. And that would be the navigation part. So how to get from A to B safely would be the navigation part. And finally, communicate. So let others know of your intentions, whether it be your lead, whether it be air traffic control, but just part of the mantra of being very smooth and predictable in the ATC uh, air traffic control environment is communicating. And now they're prioritized. So uh, there's other examples we could go into, but with, I had a, an engine failure down low and I had to aviate the plane first and I was down at hundred and I was down very low, say 180 feet. I had, to, I had to aviate the plane away from the ground first. I didn't have time to talk to my wingman, which was communicate, and it's quite okay. And it's accepted in the mantra that you're gonna to prioritize to fly safely and then to get to point B and then to talk on the radio. So if anything falls out, it's gonna be communication and all the aviators around you know and accept that, that there are priorities and it's just the limitation of the human brain. 
So there's several cases of emergencies I've been through that I can't talk on the radio right now because I'm just trying to wrestle this dragon. Right. Really important for everyone to understand because we get a skewed vision of this through the movies uh, and video games, which is that, you know, because of that's a medium of storytelling, you're being told what's going on, usually through dialogue, right? But the reality is you're up there in training or in reality in a dogfight and you're focused on fighting that fight sometimes. You know, communicating out what's going on is not intellectually necessarily what's at the top of your mind. It's it's aviating in that fight. And then additionally, you've got all the physiological strains on your body, right? So this is just something for the listener to keep in mind as we move forward in, in the series and start talking about dogfighting and, uh, you know, high intensity, close air support, if you will, that it's not as easy as you see in the movies. This this is really a, a professional top level sport, if you will. It is absolutely the, the big show or the NFL of aviation in general is right. flying fighters. 100% right. correct. So let's circle back. We're closing out the advanced phase for you, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, CQ for you happens in the advanced phase, as you, meant, as you mentioned, right? Correct. Okay. Talk me through that first carrier landing. I mean, I can only imagine. Let, let's talk through not just technically, but let's talk through those emotional highs. And you know, there may have been lows there too. I mean, I, I can't imagine that difficulty, that level of difficulty alone, right? So let's let's talk through that. Absolutely. So keep in mind, I still had Shaky's memory kind of lingering over me. This is serious business, right? So we we get ready for landing on the boat or CQ carrier qualifications by doing another set of those FCLPs of which we spoke earlier. That would be field carrier landing practice where it's a simulated carrier environment at the runway, right? So we do a whole bunch of those until you're kind of blue in the face. And then you go out and the first carrier qualification you will do as a student, you're solo. So the Navy has decided they need to mitigate the risk. And if you crash, they don't want the instructor going down too. So your back seat will be empty. So what we did is we had a, a four ship or a division. So four planes, the lead plane was an instructor. And then the other three kind of ducklings, goslings, whatever, are going to be student solos. And so we blasted off out of Jacksonville, Florida. So we took off then. So our base of operations was Jacksonville. And we flew out to the east over the water there. And we landed on the uh, Eisenhower at the time. And, you know, I've seen a carrier pier side where I'm standing on the pier or driving by and it looks huge, right? I mean, it's uh, talk about the size, the immensity, the football field, you know, analogy and all that stuff. It's three football fields and all that stuff. Well, but when you're looking at it from 10,000 feet, it looks pretty small. And that's more when I start to first thought, oh, it really does look like a floating postage stamp. You know what I'm saying? It's this little thing, yeah. and I got to go land on that. Like, but it is honestly, once again, another rite of passage. You know, the first one was mm-hmm. getting to intermediates and, and seeing and experiencing the T-45, and now seeing the carrier and experiencing landing on it in a T-45. I wish you could see me right now, but I have a big smile on my face. <laughs> I mean, absolutely loved it, right? Uh, scary and exhilarating all at the same time. And the first trap that I took, and I fortunately I did land and grab the wire on the first try, which for me is just luck, I think, <laughs> but, but I did it. 
is uh, as you can imagine, you come in, you know, you're so focused on the meatball and the, the lineup, so the line in the middle and then angle of attack of which we spoke earlier. So meatball lineup, angle of attack, meatball lineup, angle of attack, and I'm moving the throttle, the throttle appropriately in the stick and I land, I feel the weight on the wheels and uh, after, we have to do two touch and goes first, my apologies, and then we come in hook down. So after the two touch and goes, you kind of get the, the shakes off of you a little bit, you know, come back around and they train you when you go weight on wheels. So when you feel yourself touch down on the flight deck is to go to full power because in case you miss it, called a bolter, your jet will have the available thrust to t go flying again. Well, so I had all that ingrained procedurally. I'd, I'd just done two touch and goes. I was still, still very healthy appreciation for the carrier, but I was starting to enjoy it a little bit. When I took my first trap, I didn't come out of uh, full power, if you will. So I basically grabbed the wire and I, I don't know how long I sat there at full power, but I think people were on the flight, they're kind of like, dude, we got you, you know, throttle back. <laughs> yeah. So, but I just absolutely loved it. Just very exhilarating. And then we had to go do several more of those traps, if you will, or carry arrested landings. And each one of them was graded and you have to achieve a certain grade to pass. So fortunately, kind of grace of God and a little bit of uh, a training too, I was able to pass on my first try and I, I just felt like I had arrived. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, I am now, I am set to get my wings. I am now set to be a naval aviator, something that I had been looking for since probably I was nine. Wow. And now I'm 22. You know what I'm saying? So it's just yeah. kind of this culmination. It was epic. You've got that moment. You've yes. got that moment. So. So you've landed, you've done your traps, and then they sh and let's not forget, you have to do multiple traps and they shoot you off the catapult, right? Yes, to, yes. To go do the, the others, and that's not exactly, you know, not fraught with peril, as we've heard. And, it, you know, any True. number of things can go wrong. But so you do this number of traps. How many is it to, to get CQ'd? I think it's six, six and four. Okay. So I think it's six traps and four touch and goes. Okay. So you've done that. And now you, you've made it, right? Like this is it. That is that is the benchmark that marks you are about to be a naval aviator. Correct. Absolutely. Name. So you come back, and you know what next? What, what had? Let's talk about physically getting those wings. You know, pinning those on. Sure thing. So another smile here. So yeah, so we have. I our, could hear it in our... your voice. Yeah. <laughs> we have this. Formal ceremony and our choker whites, a la Top Gun, blah, blah, blah. All that's, but, and, and that's fun and that's well and that's great. And we're at the O Club, which would be the on-base bar there. And parents are there, visitors. It's, it's a great time. But that's when I realized uh, after the official ceremony, there's something called blood wings. Have you heard of that, Scott? I have. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so now, now you're going to, the pomp and circumstance has kind of faded. We, we take off our choker whites at our houses. We come back in our party shirts, we'll call them, right? So we got these bowling shirts yep. with our wings on. And now's the unofficial ceremony. So the parents are no longer there. The commanding officer is no longer there, probably for plausible deniability, right? <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the instructors, though, they want to make sure that we really feel the pride. And, and I've got a heavy emphasis on feel, feel the pride right. of naval aviation. <laughs> so they proceed to line us up as in shoulder to shoulder, all facing the same way. And then they walk down and they punch us right on the, oh, I'm sorry, and they, um, with the naval wings, aviator wings, 
they have these posts that have points on them. So mm -hmm. you, they're, the, the points are meant to go through the uniform and, and keep it attached to the uniform. And we put these little clasps or frogs, we call them on the back, that's supposed right. to protect the skin from the post. Well, we have to remove those frogs. And then we have just the bare metal post poking through our bowling shirts and, in, and on our skin at this time. And then the instructor comes through and kind of drives the, the wings quite literally home by punching the wings into our chest so that the posts now, you know, penetrate the skin. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so now we really earned our wings by right. having multiple instructors, kind of this gauntlet, if you will, bam, bam, right. bam. And, yeah. And I still have my wings. They were actually bent after yeah. 20 punches or whatever. They actually got bent and they, I had to pull them back out of my chest. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what some of the feedback is on this episode. I think it was a different time back then. Uh, so we'll see. But yeah, I'm familiar with that. In service Navy, the, the tacking out of crows for promotion. The uh, Yes, yes. Similar things were done with swoop pins and yeah. jump wings and you know, other sort of pins like that. And I'll leave commentary <laughs> about that alone other than to say that of uh, all the trials and travails I think that someone's going to face in a military enlistment or career, uh, that's not going to be the top one of them. <laughs> we'll leave that alone. Exactly. Uh, but let's let's talk about something that was a pretty significant trial for you. Uh, even though it came after flight school, we alluded to it earlier, uh, this situation with the lightning strike you had in the S-3. Absolutely. So I'm in an S-3, which is a four-place plane, uh, four seats, if you will, plane. There's a, And I'm sitting in the left, front left as the pilot and there's a naval flight officer over on the right hand side we had just launched off the carrier we're going straight ahead uh, observing uh, traditional procedural departures if you will anyway just doing everything by the book so we're doing everything by the book and I'm um, I'm honestly kind of fat dumb and happy just doing our normal stuff and all of a sudden there's a loud pop uh, I perceive this kind of bright flash and I am disoriented so I immediately pull back on the stick because our departure from the carrier, we stay at 500 feet for about seven miles. So when in doubt, though, pull back, right? So I pull back to make the, the ocean smaller as I'm climbing up. And then I try to assess what in the world just happened. And we traditionally have an intercom system. So that would be an internal radio, if you will, to talk amongst the crew members electronically over the microphones. And that's not working. So I look over and I start to, when I move my eyes to look to my right, which is the, the right seater, you know, my kind of co-pilot, I notice that I have some pain in my eye. So anyway, I look over and I realize that our mics are not working. So I move my mic out of the way. It's a boom mic, if you will, kind of contraption. And I start yelling at him like, what just happened? And he's yelling back at me. I have no idea. Just climb. <laughs> so we, we have, I, I literally, I, I've gone from complacency boredom to abject terror and I don't know why. I don't know what has caused this. I just know there's a big flash, you know, a, a loud pop and now my, my left eye is starting to hurt. So anyway, so we climb up. Now we climb up but we want to avoid the clouds because we know there's some kind of electrical issue and we don't want to go in the clouds if our instruments don't work. Anyway, so we start, we start a circle. So when in doubt, just kind of orbit. So we start a circle and we realize that we can't talk on the radios nor can we talk on the intercom system. So we're yelling at each other. So my right seater pulls out his uh, survival radio out of his survival vest and he starts talking on that 
and he can't hear anything, but he can transmit. So he can transmit, but he can't receive because he doesn't have an earpiece and all that. So he calls out on something we call guard, which is our international emergency frequency. And he says, hey, this is who I am. We don't know what happened. We're, we have an electrical failure. This is where we are because we, uh, we, we know we're roughly seven miles from the boat or the carrier or something. Anyway, so, so we just start a circle and then someone else joins on us. And this is another S3 who has heard these transmissions. So he joins on us. And then uh, at this point, we have no audio communication. So it's all visual. It's all signals, right? From my, it's going to be hand signals from my cockpit to his cockpit, the lead. So he takes the lead and then he drops his hook. And that's an indication of, hey, are you ready to come back and land? And this has all been, you know, this is procedure that we've practiced beforehand. And, and I look down and I, and I look at my instruments like, are we able to land? And that's when I realized that the, the flash and the pop that I heard was not actually the lightning per se, but it was, there's a piece of my flight gear that attaches my parachute to me. And it has a little pyrotechnic in it that can pop in case I uh, land in the water with a parachute. And then what will happen is the parachute can actually become a sea anchor and pull me down. Mm -hmm. So there's a saltwater activated release system called SeaWars. So apparently this electrical strike of some sort has actually ignited my seawars. So what happens is my, my connection, my parachute connection on my left shoulder has actually exploded. And so what I felt in my eye was either pieces of plastic or, or the gases, you know, as it, as it mm -hmm. explodes. But anyway, so my, my vision's kind of hurting in my left eye. And I look down though, and I see that my parachute is no longer connected. Well, I don't want to try to land on the boat if I can't eject. Because, yeah, that's right? probably exactly. going through your mind. Yeah, <laughs> pretty pretty obvious math here. So anyway, so so I, I I shake off by just giving you know a no signal to him, and I don't drop my hook, so he knows. Okay, we have to divert. So we have to divert to uh, Puerto Rican. It's called Rosie Roads, but basically it's mm -hmm. Puerto Rico is the closest yeah. chunk of land. Yeah. So now we start to transit. Now I can see that I can see my gas. I'm hoping he has enough gas to get there and I can't talk to him. So we start climbing up to get to a, a, a max cruise profile, very fuel efficient transit to the Puerto Rican uh, runway there. And as we're traveling, we go into weather. We go into some pretty bad weather, some additional, I, I don't know about lightning, but a lot of heavy clouds, rain and all this stuff. So I have to really get close to him and I'm just hoping, I'm praying that I don't lose sight of this guy in the clouds because I have no way to talk to him on the radio. And what do I do if I'm just by myself and I can't see him kind of thing? Grace of God, we stay close. I'm able to see him. And then he starts a descent. And at this point, I know, even though my electronics aren't necessarily working, I know that we're coming down to land. So now I'm watching his signals and he gives me a signal to dirty up, meaning to drop my landing gear. So he drops his landing gear. I drop my landing gear. And then he brings me down onto a precision runway approach anyway, we'll call it. And so at a certain point, a certain uh, point along the approach, he's going to actually depart. He's going to kiss me off. So he gives me a signal saying, hey, there's the runway. Stop looking at me and look at the runway and land. So when he gives me those signals, I stop looking at him because remember, I'm, I'm in the clouds still. So I'm, I am very intently focused on his plane and not losing sight of it and not running into it. Right. So A and B got it. <laughs> right. So anyway, <laughs> so he gives he gives me the signal. Hey, go ahead and stop looking at me and look for the runway ahead of you. Then he climbs away. I transition my scan from staring at the jet to looking for the runway environment. And when I do, I realize, oh, we're really high. <laughs> so <laughs> not, not the sight picture I wanted. 
So it turns out that uh, the, they're the undercast layer, so the clouds were down very low, close to the ground, but they were high enough that I could see the runway at my very uh, high height, if you will. So I had probably about, I don't say 15 to 20 seconds from when I acquired the runway until when I landed. And so we landed very steeply coming down, if that makes sense, and very mm -hmm. quickly. And oh, by the way, the runway was wet. So at the last minute, just before we actually touched down, I said, I need to drop the hook. I don't know if, if we're going to be able to stop before we dribble off the end of the runway. So sure enough, I dropped the tail hook. We landed on the runway, didn't really skid or anything. But anyway, then we grabbed the wire and we came to a stop. And I just, just this, this sense of relief. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, I did that. I don't know what happened, yeah. but we got through it. It was very non-standard. It had never been practiced, but it all worked out. These procedures that we had briefed before, we had to kind of kludge them together to make, a, make it work, and it all worked. And then we taxi back to the, uh, the parking area, and we shut down, and we have some technicians come in. And they said, the S3 in the back, mind you, has something, let's say, over 100 circuit breakers back there, and about 80 of them had popped. And I said, oh, and then this, and I, you know, this part of my gear has exploded too. I don't know what to do. And they're like, well, we need to take you to medical, your eyes, bloodshot and all that stuff anyway. So, so I thought, you know, out of all this, Scott, out of all this, this silliness that we just had to go through, I think I'm going to get a nice meal out of it because <laughs> I'm on the beach. I'm not going back to the carrier. It's going to be awesome. Spend a night in a hotel. You know what I'm saying? Like it was a well-deserved reward, right? For right. what I had just done. I was hoping. Well, the uh, technicians were faster and better than I thought. So they had actually fixed the jet, fixed my gear, called the carrier and said, hey, you know, Sunshine is basically the jet's back up. When do you want him back? And the carrier said, launch him immediately. He can make this next recovery. So <laughs> I, I didn't even get a hamburger. I didn't get anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I think I got a, a Gatorade and a Snickers bar. And then they put me, they stuffed me back into that plane and then back went to the carrier. So <laughs> Back you went. <laughs> yeah, just, oh. Yet another great story. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, something to take away from that. You just dealt with this situation, dealt with bringing your aircraft, bringing your crew back from this emergency. You put it down on the deck in the rain, on the wet runway. Everything turns out okay. And you had that feeling you described. I bring this up because we're going to be hearing from a lot of people during this program who are professionals just like that and have accomplished some things, and they talk about them sort of like they're just no big deal. But I want to talk about that feeling for a minute because what it is is you accomplished your mission. It's not pride. It's not really pride. It's, it's everything went wrong. And in ways that we hadn't been trained for, we hadn't foreseen in total, but you took all the pieces and you dealt with it and you made it right. And it's not pride. It's just that sense that, you know, so much trust and faith has been put in me and they gave me all these tools and I accomplished the mission. I did what I was supposed to do. Am I hitting what you were feeling there? You are. Absolutely. It's not a sense of pride. But it's an essential of accomplishment based on training. And honestly, still, I can't. It's, it's the grace of God. And those things together, it's not me. I'm not an amazing pilot. It's just it all worked out. And I can't be thankful enough. I may disagree with the statement that you're not an amazing pilot. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. 
you know, I had a good friend, good mentor once who said the truest reward is that look and a nod from another true professional. Yep. Amen. Amen to that. So I think the closing piece on that story is for any of you considering a military career out there, there's a couple of military stereotypes. One is hurry up and wait. Everyone's familiar with that. But the other one is, oh, hey, look, I'm going to get a good deal. This is going to. Oh, there it goes. (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) All right. Sunshine, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I really appreciate you doing this for us. Is there any closing thoughts you'd like to share with us or anything we've missed? Yeah, Scott, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And it's uh, just bringing back some really good memories, some very stressful times too, memories, if you will. But uh, overall, I've got a handful of kind of big picture takeaways. So the first one is flight school is unapologetically demanding. So there's about a one in five or 20% attrition rate, you know, or people that wash out. So keep in mind, it, it's very difficult. It's very demanding. And the skills that get you to flight school, so it might be academic prowess, it could be uh, communication skills and all that, those aren't necessarily the same skills that are gonna get you through primary. For example, with my aerospace engineering background at the Naval Academy, I felt like I you know, had accomplished and I, I felt pretty confident in my skill set about aerospace engineering, but that really didn't help it, didn't help me, excuse me, in primary. And I had to I had to learn what was important primary. So I, at times I found primary and actually really the jet school more difficult and taxing and stressful than the Naval Academy four-year syllabus. So keep in mind, just uh, the skill set is gonna shift as you get there. Also what I learned is you're gonna you need to expect criticism and occasional failure. And it's what you do with that that's gonna provide you with success. So the criticism I got of, hey, and it's, it's, it's constructive, but it's very business-minded. So they're not going to attack your personality. They're going to attack your deficiencies, if you will, in performance. So you need to learn from that, and you need to move on and kind of compartmentalize. And you just can't let those criticisms and those failures, even if they compile, they can't define you. You just have to learn from them and move on. That is, if you don't do that, it's probably going to lead to an attrition or a removal from flight school. Also... Scott, the only person in flight school that cares the most about an individual's training is that individual, is that student. So unlike college where we have this kind of collaborative teaching model where there's a teacher that can spoon feed you, there's after hour study sessions, there's probably some kind of student academic excellence center where they can go and find tutors and all that. The material is readily available via online or via uh, hard copies in squadron spaces but the Navy is not gonna spoon feed you. This is your first instance of, hey, you need to go out there and find the information for yourself. So keep that in mind. And then along those lines of trying to get the information for yourself, you gotta work in groups. So I, I used to say cooperate to graduate, and I don't mean cheat on a test, but I mean you gotta be social about this thing. It is definitely a social action, if you will, or social activity, and the collective wisdom I think everyone's going to find is much better than the individual knowledge. So study in groups. Find people, your peers, probably with you in the same phase, but also make some friends that are about one to two weeks ahead of you because they've already experienced some of those obstacles, some of the, oh, I didn't realize that, and the gotchas, if you will, from the later flights. And you're not going to compete with them necessarily because they're going to graduate ahead of you. So they should be able to provide you with as much gouge as possible 
and there's no kind of tainting it because of uh, there's some kind of competitive nature going on. So study in groups with your peers, but then also once again, try to find someone that's about one to two weeks ahead of you to help out. And I do remember thinking of this kind of cooperate to graduate. There's something called a training review board. So I, I did uh, failed something in jet school and had to go to a, a TRB, this training review board. And one of the questions they did ask me is, hey, are you studying in a group? And if the answer is no, the rest of the, the TRB there is not going to go well for you. So just keep in mind, there is a definite strong and heavy emphasis on training in groups. One thing also, Scott, that took me a while to get used to was I had to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. So I expected to be uncomfortable a lot. I think all the uh, prospective student pilots should expect the same. So you're going to be constantly evaluated, whether it be in academics with a test at the end or in the simulator performance, or if it be in the plane with performance, but you're constantly being evaluated. That gets very stressful and it can be very fatiguing. So just being able to realize and understand and manage this uncomfort level that's going to be consistent throughout all of flight school is going to be a plus. And there's also in the plane, there's air sickness. So some folks are going to be more predisposed, we'll say, to air sickness. So that's another kind of uncomfortable thing that folks have to get over. And I do remember from the contact stage or kind of the FAMs, especially in jet school. So for the first week, the first five days, I had two a day flights and then I had a check ride or my big safer solo evaluation on that Saturday. And talk about having gray matter dripping out of your ear. I was just absolutely tired, but I made way, my way through it. I passed the check ride and then the just made the solo on that Monday, that following Monday, just all the more sweet. So things just to keep in mind is once again, being comfortable about being uncomfortable. Touching real quickly, don't worry about the NSS. We kind of did a deep dive earlier on that. That's really, it's a moving target, right? And it's not terribly relevant until you complete. So instead of worrying about your NSS, worry about your emergency procedures, your lights and your limits, know them cold, because procedural knowledge and procedural compliance are a cornerstone to naval aviation. So focus more on that. And when you're studying and you're learning those lights, limits, and EPs, learn to study as well as perform while being distracted. So for example, I think I mentioned earlier, I learned to juggle. And so I would recite my EPs while I'm juggling so that my mind was somewhat distracted because when you get up in the cockpit there, there's gonna be a lot of stimuli, right? And you're not gonna be able to just sit there, shut out all the uh, information and perform your procedures. You're gonna have a lot going on. So you're gonna be distracted quite often in the cockpit. So try to find a way on the ground to train yourself to be able to perform while still being distracted. And then finally, it was very difficult, but you know, cause I said we, we would fly sometimes six days a week. Schedule fun, make sure you find some downtime or you'll go crazy and crack. I saw it of some guys, they didn't schedule their fun and you know, they, they turned to things like smoking and what, it's just, it was terrible. You deliberately have to schedule fun because as you work hard, there's some kind of balance obviously and you need to play hard too. And then finally, once you go through this up to two year experience, regardless of what the Navy gives you based on your grades, what you want and needs of the Navy and the foot stomper being needs of the Navy, I have yet to meet a fleet aviator who didn't grow to love their fleet aircraft, whether it be a helicopter, a jet, a tilt rotor or whatnot. So just getting your wings is such an amazing accomplishment. And then I honestly feel that everyone is going to learn to love their fleet aircraft. All right. You know, I think I'm not going to follow that up because 
you just gave what I think is some terrific advice, not just for flight school, but for success in life in general. Fair enough. <laughs> and I appreciate that. And I think I hope the, the listeners appreciate it because I think you just nailed it. If there's any of you out there contemplating a future in the military in particular, uh, take notes on that part you just listened to because that will get you through any program you choose and that'll get you through life. So Sunshine, again, thank you. Uh, really appreciate it. And I hope we'll be talking together more in the future. I hope so too, Scott. It's been a pleasure and have a great day. All right. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for our first episode of Fights On. I hope you enjoyed it. Join us next time. We'll be talking to retired Army helicopter pilot, Brian Casmo Harris, who flew the Kiowa Warrior and the Apache. We'll be discussing Army Flight School, their platforms, their weapons, and how the Army integrates aviation into the maneuver battle on the ground. That's next time on Fights On.